So as you know, we are looking at the Lord's Prayer all summer long, and we're looking at it because by Jesus giving us this prayer, he's not just giving us something to say by rote in the mornings or in the evenings, but he's actually giving Christians a vision for all of life. And so we are studying it deeply so that as we pray, we can understand it more deeply, we can know ourselves more deeply, and that we can have the same vision. And so today, we're going to go ahead and, and read once again from Matthew 6, 1 through 13. You can follow on your phones. Uh, we'll have it here as well. I'm reading from the NIV version. And this is uh, Matthew 6, 1 through 13. Jesus says this, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness, not to practice righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not renounce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that you, your giving may be in secret. Uh, excuse me. Uh, yes, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And this is the passage, uh, the section that we're going to focus on today. And when you pray, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you even ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's the little bit. Let me go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage, and we pray that your Spirit would guide us through this text. That's our prayer to us. And so, Lord, would you would you guide us this morning? We pray this in Jesus' name. So the, the, I misspoke. The, the section we're actually going to be looking at is your kingdom come, your will be done. We've been going through and we've covered what it means to say our Father, what it means that our Father is in heaven, uh, what does it mean to hallow his name, and exalt his name. And now we're turning to this section of the passage in which Jesus addresses our own hearts and the systems of the world. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Pray in that manner. Uh, this this week, I came across an interview uh, with David Brooks at BioLogos. BioLogos is a faith-oriented, Christian-oriented science community. And he was talking with Francis Collins, and Francis Collins is the uh, man who oversaw the team that mapped the human genome. So here you have these two pretty heavy hitters having this discussion, and kind of an offhanded comment. David Brooks addresses our current cultural moment, and he says, why is there so much authoritarianism around? And he asks that in a kind of a rhetorical manner, and then he gets the answer. And I wish I could have all the comments this brilliant. 
he says, why is there so much authoritarianism around? He says, because when you give people freedom, freedom feels like chaos. And they will escape from freedom into order. Why are we so bitterly divided? Why are our institutions so bitterly divided? And he says, because people are moral creatures. If you give them no moral system in which their sin, uh, the brokenness of our, our, our motivations, runs down, uh, and if you give them no moral sin in which no moral system in which sin runs down the heart of every person, they're going to adopt a very easy moral system where sin runs between groups, between us and them. The problem with that, he says, is this, you are asking politics to deliver salvation for you. You're asking more of politics than it can bear, and it is ultimately self-defeating. You end up not with moral chaos, but just moral war. So it's a bad solution. They ask the audience, where might a better solution be? And Jesus is addressing that very question, and he's providing a better solution for us. In this passage, Jesus, this is the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is often referred to as Jesus' inaugural address, which he gave off. And he's talking about the vision and the values of the kingdom of God. And who is he addressing in that time? He's talking to a group of religious and irreligious people who are divided because of religious authoritarianism. He's talking within a context of the Roman Empire which is a, an authoritarian political entity. So this community here is struggling with many of the same things and asking some of the same things that our culture is. What, why are we so attracted to authoritarianism? And Jesus gives us an answer, and it's, a, it's a, uh, an answer and a teaching that would have been so provocative in that moment. He says, I understand the systems in which we function, the religious systems, and the political systems. And he's saying, I want you to pray for a different kingdom. I want you to pray for the will of a different king. And so he teaches us, he teaches uh, this community how to pray. So when we pray, what can we learn by praying this, your kingdom come, your will be done. I think what he's teaching us is he trains his followers by teaching that, that phrase to restrain the spirit of authoritarianism in themselves and to resist it in others. That's what he's doing when he says, your kingdom come, your will be done. Teaching ourselves to restrain the spirit of authoritarianism that runs within our own hearts. And it helps us to resist it when we see it in others. So to pray for his kingdom to come and his will to be done is the hope that the kingdom of God and his will will, will come uh, Fully, literally, and personally. To pray that is to pray that the kingdom of God will come fully, literally, and personally. That it will, that it will, uh, that it will arrive fully, not partially, literally, not metaphorically, and to be lived out personally and beautifully. Okay, so the first point: desiring the kingdom of God so that it arrives fully. Uh, you know, in the ministry of Jesus, Christians believe that. He was the one man kingdom of God. He was the in him was the was the kingdom of God, and wherever he went, the kingdom of God went. And so Christians have always believed that wherever Jesus was, he represented the kingdom of God. He was the kingdom of God. But Christians believe that because Jesus believed that. So, and there are two places we'll point to, there's several, but I'll point to two. One is in Luke 4, 
In Luke 4, Jesus comes home to his hometown synagogue and he preaches for the first time. It would have been a big honor. And he comes and he doesn't just choose some random text, but he picks a text that talks about the kingdom of God, describes the vision and the values of the kingdom of God. And this, and this is uh, from Isaiah 61, where he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news of the poor. So you're seeing not only him claiming a particular relationship to the kingdom of God, but its values too. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Then it says that Jesus rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendants, and he sat down. And then the eyes of the synagogue, all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's like a first century mic drop. So he, what's he saying? He said, I am, I've brought the kingdom of God here. The things that you've been waiting for all your life, I am and I am. The second place is in Luke 17, where he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are a group of antagonistic religious leaders. And they, they're trying to trap him, as they always do. We all know what it's like to trap somebody in a political, religious conversation. That's what they're doing. Not very nice. And they say, well, tell me when does when, when will when will the kingdom of God be? When will it come? And he says, uh, he replies, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Or will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, when Jesus refers to the kingdom of God here being in the midst, he's talking about himself in his little presence. But here's the point. Jesus is time and time again saying, the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is within me. It's among me. So why is he asking his disciples to pray for its coming? If it's here, why is he asking us to pray for his coming? And the answer, I think, is this. That in the life and life of Jesus of Nazareth, he demonstrates the kingdom of God first. By his, he displays it. By his death and resurrection, he secures it for his people. And so when we say, when we pray, may the kingdom of God come, we're saying, the kingdom that you've established, will it come in full? The kingdom that you established, and we experienced in part, maybe in, in this passage in the first century, and as Christians experienced through the power of the Spirit in part. He's saying, when you pray, go to your father and say, I long for the day that this comes full. I need it for me personally. I see the need for it in the world. And there's nothing in my life that I want to, that there's nothing in my life that I long for more, look for more than this. Whatever's on my agenda, this trumps that. I want to walk. My, you know, I don't have a daughter. I want to walk my daughter down the aisle with the kingdom of God. And the list goes on and on of all the things I'm sorry. But it, what he's saying is, it's, he's established the kingdom of God. It's coming part enough. We pray that it comes in full. But it's also a little bit more than that. The New Testament says that the kingdom of God was, was 
wasn't simply established as if it was established for the first time. When Jesus establishes the kingdom of God, it's a reinstatement of something that was what once was, but had been lost. Remember, the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, there was one man and one woman, mankind. And what was their task? Their task was to superintend the garden, to be the great gardeners, to cultivate and nurture what God had given them, to cultivate the land, nurture the culture. Right? And what did they do? Uh, in a sense, <clears throat> they, instead of praying, you know, your kingdom come, your will be done, in this one moment, their attitude at the tree was, my kingdom come, my will be done. And that set into the rhythms of our hearts, the rhythms of the universe, that very same idea, my kingdom come, my will be done. But Jesus, who the Apostle Paul calls the second Adam. He says what he says that what, what Adam lost, Paul says what Adam lost, his second Adam, Jesus Christ, is recovered and secured, never to be lost again. So what's an example of uh, what's an example of the kingdom of God? How can how can uh, this resonate with us? Jesus stands at the tomb of Lazarus. He's standing at the tomb of Lazarus, and his friend is, is dead. He's been dead for three days. And everybody has an expectation of what the kingdom of God would look like. What's Jesus to do? He should have come earlier, right? Jesus stands at the, at the, at the tomb of Lazarus, and he calls out. He says, come out. And he comes out, restored, resuscitated. So part of the agency of somebody with the kingdom of God in mind is to simply have the attitude Nothing is impossible with God. I've been given agency to walk into the world. I also need more. I need his will to be done. I need the kingdom to be done. So when in that, we're seeing the second Adam cultivating the garden, bringing resurrection power into the world. And so this works for us on a couple different levels, uh, on a macro level, on a micro level. When Christians pray, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done, done. We are saying this same power that we experience through Jesus, this resurrection power, Lord, this is the prayer life. Use your power through your wisdom, in your ways, to bring about your will. I give you free reign in my life. In my circumstances, I trust your authority. I'm not dependent on any uh, Political ideology. I'm not particular. I'm not dependent on any particular issue to make me feel safe, to make me feel rested. I'm not waiting on any particular person. I'm waiting on you. Your rule, your reign, I wait on you. And therefore, I invite you into any situation to change things. And that is an incredible gift. Incredible gift to reveal to pray to. To a God who actually hears your prayers and has resurrection power for you. And we need that in ways that we can't, we don't even realize. Susan and I uh, were in the car a lot yesterday and this is a podcast and it's all about conflict resolution, just by chance. <laughs> and there were two data points that humbled both of us. And the first was this that of all the conflict, 
like in a particular given con uh, conflict, then only 10% of that conflict is actually dealing with the matter at hand. 90% of it, we're dealing with past histories, uh, stories, our stuff. 90%. The second data point uh, that, that hit us uh, was that 70% of dis in 70% of dis disagreements that people have, there's actually no right or wrong answer. There's no right or wrong answer in 70% of the conflicts we have. And therefore, 70% of the time, we are people insisting that we're right when nobody is actually authoritarian in our view. Now, if you're in Enneagram One, that's going to be really hard for you to be right. <laughs> and if you're not in Enneagram One, it's going to be really hard for you not to wield that power in a, in a malicious way. So, what does that mean? It simply means we don't have the wisdom, we don't have the objectivity to, to wield whatever power we abuse the power we have in an effort to build our own kingdom and the conflicts that we have are our living proof of that. So we're taught to be right. Strain your authoritarian tendencies. When you do, don't be surprised if you resist those tendencies in others. So first point, desiring the kingdom is uh, when we desire the kingdom, we pray for the kingdom to come, we pray that it comes fully. The second point is to pray for the kingdom uh, and to expect that it will come literally in transformation. Literally in transformation. We all have an idea of what it looks like for the kingdom of God. If we look at our culture, we see the way things work, and we say, if God would just change it, it would look like X. It would look like this. But Jesus really challenges his time and place, and he challenges us in the way that he talks about the kingdom. He talks about it mostly in parables, similes, and metaphors. What that means is that he's calling upon our imaginations to think that uh, he's calling upon our imaginations to communicate. Uh, sorry, he's calling upon our imaginations. He's speaking to the listeners to communicate unique truths about the, the kingdom of God. Let me just give you Matthew 13. He uses four or five different illustrations, similes, metaphors to talk about the kingdom of God. And they're not any that I've ever He compares the kingdom of God to that of a mustard seed. Then he compares it to a man planting a field. And then he compares it to yeast. And then he compares it to buried treasure. Now, what is he doing with all of this? And, you know, what are we to make of all of this? Is he talking about using metaphor in the, in the sense that this isn't literally happening? No, I think, he, I think, I think what he's doing, and C.S. Lewis is helpful here, C.S. Lewis uh, famously said, that sometimes fairy stories, sometimes fairy stories may say best what is to be said. Right? So Lewis is writing in a time in which, uh, in a modern time in which people are as academic, cere cerebral as possible. They're a little bit skeptical, cynical of fairy kinds of stories. And he's defending fairy stories because, you know, fairy stories actually say what needs to be said. They, 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 they phrase things in a way that only that, that uh, in a unique way that hits the heart. And so in the same way, these parables, these similes, these metaphors, 
they say that's what needs to be said. So the point I'm trying to make is that despite his illustrative language, he's not referring to something pure, purely metaphorical, but he's talking about something literal, literal. Right? The kingdom of God, he says, is to be received. He says you can hold it. And though Jesus in the in that verse he says that you can't observe it, I think what he means is it's so small that if you're looking for it, you'll be surprised at what you discover. It's so small that you probably it's imperceptible. But know that it's literally right in front of you. So Brian Hardin wrote a book uh, called Sneezing Jesus, How God Redeems Our Humanity, and it came out in Navigator's Press. But he says this, and he's talking about this, this idea. He says, continually, Jesus described the kingdom in terms that one can't point to and identify specifically. But in every story, the kingdom was the essential piece. The kingdom is mixed and present already. It's like leaven and a loaf of bread. Of course, you can't find the leaven after the loaf is baked. The loaf would be completely deflated and radically different if the leaven were missing. The kingdom is like a tiny mustard seed that sprouts into a giant bush. Someone couldn't find the original mustard seed after the bush was grown, but birds could not rest in the branches were it not for the seed. When Jesus said the kingdom of God is in your midst, these words are such a colossal paradigm shift, an upside down way of looking at an inside out world. They are as disruptive, disruptive now as they were when they were spoken. Jesus is telling the people then and now that we won't be able to identify the kingdom geographically or point to it in any one singular event. Even though the fullness of God is not yet realized, the kingdom has already begun. We are a vital part of that realization. It's everywhere, and it's now. By the power of his spirit, he's among us. And worth losing all we have. So I think what this means is, a true climate change were to occur, it would, it would be inaccurate to say that's the kingdom of God. But you, it would be accurate to say you can't have a healthy planet without the kingdom of God being in its place. True racial reconciliation alone isn't the kingdom of God. But you can't have racial reconciliation without the kingdom of God being in its midst. The end of abortions and the end of a need for abortions isn't alone the kingdom of God, but a solution to that problem. How do we dignify all those affected by unexpected pregnancies cannot be done without the kingdom of Jesus. So if that is true, do we not see our need for this kingdom? Do we not see our need for this kingdom? Because the kingdom of God is literally among us, even uh, within Christians. How, how do we begin to work? But I think, obviously, when we think about those kinds of issues, we, we recognize it's going to just simply take so much time and money and relationships. But here's the point. It may cost your life. When you pray, the kingdom of God to come for his will to be done, you're saying, no matter what, no matter what it costs you, it's worth it, because it's literally coming. It's not the end of your life. It's an aspect of your life. 
but to lay it down to give yourself over to spend time, money, relationships, so on and so forth. That's what that prayer is all about. And it's kind of without hesitation. Now, friends, in a consumeristic culture where the biblical command to deny yourself is, is uh, hard to swallow, it's obviously offensive. We need to do some self-work here and ask yourself the question, what am I willing to die for today? What would I, what would I lay my life down for? And it's do a diagnostic and be honest with yourself. It may not be what you say. There may be some things on there that you, you're ashamed to actually say in public. Write it down. Why? Because then we know what kind of king we're actually serving. It is a beautiful thing to lay your life down. It's something or someone. Christians have called it uh, The kingdom of God is worth losing all we have to gain it. It's also worth losing all we have to share it. So Christians are to expect it fully. We're to expect it literally, but we're also to live it out. Here, I just want to share two or three examples because I don't want to be too prescriptive. Um, you know, the kingdom of God, when it comes personally, it comes beautifully. It also comes sacrificially, and it's always a surprise to the person who receives it. It's magical, mind-boggling. It's the kingdom of God is. We tend to think, I'm taking on something smaller than my own aspirations. Mark Batterton is a, or Labyrinth, excuse me, is a, is a pastor here in the, in the United States, and he has this book called Paul. It's a good book. And in this, he says, when I was considering the possibility of, of embracing Christian faith as a young college student, what I feared most was, was that it would make my life smaller rather than larger, less love, less joy, less creativity, less wonder, less engagement. I had met enough Christians who were incarnational proof of this. So when I finally came to faith in Christ as a college student, it was because I discovered that Jesus saves people from their very, the very smallness I feared. I saw that the very essence of the kingdom of God is a life bigger than I would ever find outside. Another example, some of you guys know Brandon and Faith Lee. Brandon and Faith Lee started a coffee shop in the city in Hell's Kitchen called Burden Branch. And the whole point of coffee, the, the coffee shop was to bring restoration to the world and some refreshment. So what they their desire, and this is in Jonathan Walton's book, their desire was they wanted a planet, uh, they wanted their employees and all those who are part of their supply chain from producer to consumer to be better off because of their business. And now it exists in Hell's Kitchen. Um, a meeting there this week. Uh, it is a, a the nexus for a lot of different activity in Hell's Kitchen, but it's the nexus for a lot of different Christian uh, enterprise there too. But here's what's interesting. Brandon and, Brandon and Faith put their jobs to ensure that those who lack living wages and job training could have a shot at thriving in a society that says they're unworthy because they maybe once lived on the street or committed crimes or were sexually exploited. Brandon and Faith's parents did not come to America to that plant for their children. This is not America's invitation and is certainly not the narrative for college-educated Chinese-Americans living in but here, listen to this. But that is just one of the possibilities. 
two people fall in love with Jesus and choose the vision of the kingdom of God over the one offered by America. Their faithfulness is a reflection of a higher allegiance, an alternate citizenship that trumps the one that dominant culture and their family's history touts as superior. Uh, I think this is a generational illustration, and it's best heard from Tony Campolo, but it's worth sharing. Tony Campolo was a sociologist and a, and a, and a preacher in Philadelphia, still alive, retired. And he, he had an itinerant ministry, and he was in Hawaii, and he, he was preaching there, but it, because of the, you know, the, the time zone change, he was up all night long. And so he's 3.30 in the morning, Tony Campolo, trying to get something to eat. So he leaves his Waikiki hotel, and he goes and finds a greasy spoon diner. And I went to high school in Hawaii. I lived in Hawaii for a long time. There's a lot of great greasy spoon diners <laughs> in Hawaii. At 3.30 in the morning in Waikiki, this would be true. He went, he was alone, and then in a rush, he was surrounded by uh, a group of prostitutes. And so when he was sitting there, he's feeling very uh, out of place. And he's just about to leave when he hears one of the, the women next to him said, tomorrow's my birthday. And one of the other women begins to chide her. Says, who cares? What do you expect? You think we're going to buy you a cake? Do you want something? She says, why are you being so mean? I don't expect you to do it. Well, I'm just saying. Uh, I, nobody's ever made a cake for me. Nobody's ever held a kind of birthday party for me. So eventually they did their thing and they left. And Tony Campolo says, I leaned across the counter and I said to the, the, the owner, the cook, do they come in here every night? He said, every night they're here. Agnes, he said, this, it's this woman's birthday. He says, it's Agnes's birthday. Tony Campolo is a big personality. He says, I know what we're going to do. Tomorrow night, we're going to throw a birthday party for Agnes. So the chef calls into the back, and his wife comes out. And he says, this guy wants to throw a birthday party for Agnes. We're in. She's like, that's so amazing. And the, the wife says, you would never know this because of what she does. But she is one of the great people. In this city, she's so nice, she's so compassionate, so considerate. I cannot wait to do this. So, the chef makes a cake. Tony Campolo brings all the decorations in at 2 30 in the morning. They set it up, she walks through the door. Of course, the word had gotten out that they were going to have a birthday party for Agnes. So, every prostitute in Waikiki is in this resistant diner. And she walks in and they sing happy birthday to her. She's stunned. She cannot move. She almost faints. And when they are begging her to, to blow out the candles and cut the cake, she can't do any of that. And she, she just says, I don't, I don't want to cut this cake. Can I, can I take it home and show my mom? So her mom, you know, lifts a couple doors down. So that everybody says, okay. So she, like it was the Ark of the Covenant picks this thing up and walks it to show her more. The door slams and Tony Capola says that it was dead silence. So he said, the only thing I thought to do was, let's pray. <laughs> he prays. And what does he pray? He prays it for healing for her. For every person that's ever harmed her, brought trauma to her from the, you know, from the time she was young to till now. Pray for salvation, pray for the community. There's this beautiful prayer, the closest to prayer, and everybody's still stunned. 
and the chef across the owner says, he says, uh, I knew it. <laughs> he says, uh, uh, says, hey, you never told me you were a preacher. What kind of what kind of church do you belong to anyway? The polo says this. In one of those moments when just the right words came, I answered, I belong to a church that throws birthday parties for whores at 2.30 in the morning. Harry was the chef, waited a moment, then almost sneered as he answered, no, you don't. There's no church like that. If there was, I'd join it. I'd join a church like that. Wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we all like to be uh, to join a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at 2.30 in the morning? And Coppola goes on to say, that's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the church that Jesus came to create. That's what the kingdom of God looks like in the world. To create a church filled with people who move out into the world, who bring celebration and joy in the lives of those with no celebration and no joy, patience of God, and a loveless and joyless The basic premise of our lives is what? Not the Christian life. The basic premise of the broken heart of human beings is that we're the authoritarians in the world. And that the premise of that is your life for mine. Sacrifice your vision, your values for my kingdom. But Jesus Christ presents a completely different vision, which is my life for yours. And he is the ultimate performer. And yet he comes into the world and he blesses people and he throws birthday parties for people who nobody else would. And he secures a kingdom that everybody's invited into. David Brooks, just to close, he says this, Christians, do not be afraid of what you have to offer. David Brooks, you guys know who he is, right? New York Times columnist, PBS, uh, you know, he's got the jobs. And yet for decades, he preached and spoke, not preached, he spoke at Christian campuses for decades as an avowed atheist. But time after time after time, he heard the good news. And he found it over time so beautiful that eventually he gave his heart over to it. So he knows very clearly what it's like to live without Jesus and very clearly what it is to live like Jesus. And he says to the world now, as something is out, out of the spiritual closet, he says, Christians, do not be afraid of what you have to offer. People are dying to hear Let us take on the posture. Our life for others. And what that means is that we take on the sacrifices of sharing with others. That's what storefront church is all about. We want to be a nexus with the kinds of illustrations that we've heard this morning. Your kingdom, your will be on earth as it is in heaven. Heavenly Father, you are kind. And you're the giver. Thank you, Lord, for every person we've heard about here today and what worked in your life. And we look forward to, and we give thanks for the ways that you work in ours. Help us to continue to learn these things in Jesus' name. Amen.